Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. You know, a founder that uh, it's actually he 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 knows a thing or two about building and scaling companies in heavily regulated spaces. I think that we're going to learn a ton about the cannabis industry. But I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Michelle Can. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So, Mitch, originally you were born and raised in Milwaukee, in a middle-class family. So uh, I know that you guys, you know, never had a, a, a ton of money. Uh, and obviously, I'm sure that this really developed who you are today. Uh, but how, how, was that, uh, how was that time for you uh, growing up there and being raised uh, in an environment of, of that nature? You know, it was, uh, I had a great childhood. I, I uh... I have to admit, I have a hard time thinking about anything that wasn't a pretty good memory as a kid. We had a we had a great life. We grew up in a very nice middle class suburb, and uh, you know, I think it was a uh, you know it was a terrifically you know Milwaukee is a wonderful place to grow up and a great place to raise kids. I think in between, it may not be such a great place for most people, but it's uh, but it's really a nice place. And I think uh, you know, I think what it did ultimately for me, Alejandro, is it it uh, it helped me understand that. As I grew up and went to college and went to law school and whatnot, and we'll talk about some of that, I assume, um, you know, it was very clear to me that whatever I wanted to achieve in my life, I was going to need to achieve on my own with tremendous support from my parents and my family, but, uh, but emotional support, uh, which was terrific and important and uh, couldn't have asked for a better childhood. Very cool. And I understand as well that uh, your father had the entrepreneurial spirit. So I guess, uh, you know, one thing that I see as well in a lot of founders is that they absorb or they acquire that uh, desire potentially of doing something on their own in, in, in their future uh, when they see that, you know, in, in their family as well early on. No? Yeah. I, you know, my dad, certainly he, he had a number of uh, a number of jobs as I was growing up. He was an accountant originally and then um, ran a number of businesses for some other folks and actually moved around a little bit, moved to Salt Lake City, Utah at one point uh, to run a consulting business. Um, but he, he always did that and was tinkering with ideas and entrepreneurial thoughts uh, literally up until uh, till the day uh, just about three years ago when we lost him. Wow. Wow. 
And I know that uh, for you as well, you studied accounting. So why why accounting? You know, it's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. It's it was probably a uh, um, you know combination of a couple things. I always liked and was good at math as a kid, and uh, it was probably some uh, you know deep seated uh, thought to kind of follow some of what my dad was doing. Uh, and I always thought it was a good uh, kind of a good background to build, not necessarily anything to practice. And I never actually practiced it, but I think it has given me an appreciation for for numbers and financials and those kinds of things that might have been hard to accomplish other than that. Well, definitely very equipped, uh, I would say, because you got the number side and then also you got the legal side. So uh, so no messing around with Mitch when it comes to doing deals. So uh, <laughs> so, so Mitch, what, what happened there? Because I know that you decided to go to Chicago and, and, and go to law school. So, so what triggered that? Um, you know, again, it, it was, uh, you know, I think I was, uh, and I was, you know, I was, you know, I always did well in school, Alejandro. And, uh, that always, I won't say it came easily to me, but I was, as long as I worked hard, the results were always pretty darn good. Um, and, uh, it just kind of felt like the next logical step. And I was, uh, you know, I was almost just on a path of kind of get through school and the accounting degree and a CPA certificate and then go to law school. And uh, and I had no complaints. It was a young, you know, I was young and, and we had a the beginning of a great life. And and I think, though, it ultimately, as I practiced law for a few years, it uh, it became clear to me that I that I had more uh, more entrepreneurial desires in me. Got it. Got it. And obviously, uh, after the seven or eight years really doing that real estate and and corporate uh, practice as a, as an attorney then then you went into the business side so uh, so what happened there you know I, I always had said or at least not you know I think for the the last three four years for sure of practicing law I said to anybody who you know any dummy who ever asked me that you know I'd rather be on the business side I'm not sure that I actually meant it but I said it and then one day somebody called my bluff. And uh, some folks offered me the opportunity to leave the practice alone, and come in in-house in a, in a retail company and run legal real estate and construction and help expand the business nationally around the country, uh, which, uh, which was terrific. And you there went from 25 stores to 75 stores, then you went to 50. So, I mean, you were able to really see the, the growth phase and some of the logistics, but then also you were ultimately involved with the with the actual uh, transaction, with the acquisition of the business. So I guess when you were able to see that that type of, uh, those different cycles, not at a, at a business level, I'm sure that you got some really major takeaways. So so what would you say were your top three takeaways from this experience? So, you know, I think, I think as, you know, as I look back on that, and you're absolutely right, by the way, I, I uh, you know, I saw cycle you know a couple cycles in the in the you know seven eight years that i was that i was there um and you know we came in you know as i came in we were expanding like crazy all over the country and i think you know the single biggest takeaway that i that i took from this is 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 that you need to as you're expanding businesses um you know first of all speed is is oftentimes very significantly important um, but you have to balance that against making sure what you're doing is financially intelligent. It doesn't mean 
You have to make money instantly, but you got to make darn sure that you have the capital available to do what you need to do to grow the business. But, you know, one of the things that happened to us in the sporting goods business is there were a couple other folks around the country also taking big box chains and expanding them in the sporting goods business. And it became it became a capital markets race. And even though I to this day think our store was better than one of the other guy stores who ultimately won, if you will, um, they beat us. Both of the other groups I'm talking about beat us to the capital markets game, beat us in the capital markets game, and were able to raise capital in a much more effective way, a much more efficient way. And at the end of the day, that's been an enormous lesson that we've carried through to this business too. Uh, so, you know, I think I think as you look at businesses and you try to understand businesses, making sure you you have the capital side figured out, no matter how good your idea is, no matter how good the business plan is even no matter how good the people are if you don't have the capital to build it and continue with capital to expand it at the right cost structure you just can't win yeah makes total sense and then obviously this for you was a really nice segue because you started a real estate company that morphed into starting the division of of a bigger company uh, you grew that for about 10 years and then you left with the two key partners to start frontline real estate, which is more oriented towards the distress the uh, type of uh, real estate. But I guess that was probably like a, like a really nice segue into where you are today. But but tell us about this, uh, this experience as a real estate entrepreneur. Well, it, it uh, you know, I can tell you one of the things that the real estate entrepreneurial businesses we've been involved in has, has really solidified for me and helped me understand as we've we're trying as you know as we've grown this business is that uh, um, whatever you think the plan is it changes and it changes all the time and and what we originally started out to do in our real estate business changed very quickly and very dramatically multiple times and I think that uh, again that's one of the key lessons I've learned through the whole real estate business that we've obviously taken to heart in this business is that um, you know, you need to, you know, first you need to figure out your plan and execute the heck to try to the heck out of trying to get there. But you have to be flexible enough and smart enough and self-assured enough to be able to constantly look at where you are and readjust and reorient the business and and focus on different things. And, and um, you know, but to do that, you have to do it in a way that's intelligent and not just Monday morning quarterback every decision you make. So it, it's it's you know I think that's been the single biggest lesson out of the real estate business for it. And you know one of the other things that we saw in our real estate business um, before we started the frontline business was that that um, matching short term business with short-term capital and long-term business with long-term capital is very important because otherwise you can end up in a position where you have long-term assets with short-term capital. And, and if things ever hiccup, you have a serious, serious problem. And, and we've seen exactly that situation play out in the cannabis business here over the last 12 or 18 months. And, and thankfully we've been in a position where we have a sufficient asset base and, and capital raising capabilities to make sure that we have been able to withstand that very, very carefully. And that's really been one of the significant things that have helped us. So talking about cannabis, what happened that day where one of your partners went into your office and have a chat with you? <laughs> 
So, uh, so, so, so one of my two partners in the real estate business, a fellow by the name of Matt Darren, who's my, you know, who the three of us are still partners today. Matt walked in my office and said, they just passed this law. This was late 2013. They just passed this law in Illinois, allowing cannabis. We should do this. And I, I don't remember the exact words, but I can't repeat them on this probably. Uh, you know, I think the gist of it was, had, I asked him if he'd completely lost his mind. Uh, you know, people were at that point in time getting arrested in California. There were raids on facilities in California. And again, I think it's hard for anybody involved in the cannabis business to turn their brain back to what the world was like seven years ago. Um, but cannabis was not nearly as accepted as it, as it is today, obviously. And it was still a very, very much, um, you know, in in the clouds, so to speak. And, you know, it was not something that people were very excited about talking about. I can tell you uh, that our getting, you know, my getting involved in this business has cost me some friendships from a number of years ago. Uh, people who just didn't think it was a good thing to be involved in and therefore have disassociated themselves with my family. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, it was a very, very different world then than it is today. And I know you also had a, a very serious sitting down with your father uh, when you also <laughs> guys discussed, the, you know, the, you know, what was going on with cannabis and your father was, was always very much about following the rules and, and the law and what happened there during that discussion. So, uh, you know, you're right, Alejandro, he was a rule follower, um, supreme. I mean, he, he was, uh, uh, that, that's, that's how he lived every part of his life, which I think in many respects is a, it's a great thing. I, I, you know, I got a lot of great, great skills and attributes from my dad being a perfect rule follower, I think might not have been one of them, but, um, I sat down with my dad and, and, uh, to give you some context, he, uh, you know, I grew up in a house where, um, again, partially, mostly because it was the law. Um, he, he, he looked at me at one point when I was early on in high school and said, uh, you don't ever have to worry about the cops finding marijuana if you happen to have any, because it was marijuana, then it wasn't cannabis. Uh, he said, because if I find it, I'm calling the cops myself. And I'm not sure, you know, I never, you know, I wasn't really a big user of the product. And I, you know, what, what little I might have done at that point in time, uh, you know, I'm not even sure I ever had it in my house. Uh, so I'm not sure there was anything for him to find, but I believed he would have called them if he had found it. And, um, you know, to this day, I, I, I uh, believe that. I sat down with him, as you mentioned, and, and kind of talked to him about what we were looking at, what we were thinking about. And we had done some research, went to Colorado, California. And I sat down with him to ask him what he thought. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you can find me some product that will help my arthritis, I'll take it. I'm in. And uh, it was really, for me, a, a significant moment in time where, where I kind of looked at it and said, if he was going to change his view, and, you know, he, he's a, as, as I said, a real rule follower and very, very against drugs, if you will. Um, you know, he, I, I'm not sure he ever saw cannabis as medicine necessarily, although I think he was getting there. And, uh, you know, if he was going to change his view, I think Everybody was going to change their view, and I think it was one of the, it really was one of the things that propelled us to jump into the business and try to win some licenses and try to put a business together. And uh, 
Um, you know, I, I actually think about that conversation every day. He unfortunately um, passed away about three years ago. And uh, it is truly one of my biggest regrets in, in many regards that he's not here to see what we've been able to build. Well, I'm sure that he's looking down and, and very proud of, of what you've done, Mitch. So, um, yeah. So let me ask you this then, uh, Mitch. So what happened after, you know, this individual came into your office, your partner, and, and you thought it was a terrible idea? So at one point, do you guys really get aligned and say, okay, let's do this? And what was that process of, of really the, the incubation of the idea and really going at it, uh, you know, uh, as a team? Well, we, you know, as I said, we, we traveled a few times to California, met with a handful of people in the business, went to Colorado, Denver in particular, you know, two or three times, met with a whole host of folks in the business, including, uh, you know, the inevitable collection of consultants. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, based on a lot of those initial conversations and, and uh, you know, an opportunity that we saw, uh, quite frankly, to make money. I think that our view at that time, Alejandro, wasn't, you know, a lot of people got in the business for very um, personal reasons about how it helped someone in their family or whatnot. It wasn't that for us at all. We just saw an opportunity that we thought was a great business opportunity. And quite honestly, the medical side of it, which is what was the focus then and through most of the country, I'm not sure we really believed it was real. We thought, you know, I think if you, if you would have asked us then, we thought it was a, uh, a uh, um, kind of a construct that people created to get people comfortable with it. What we have come to learn and what we saw as we began to open the stores, and we can talk about that a little later, is that uh, it absolutely is a medicine and it absolutely helps people. And uh, it's, it's really been an eye-opening experience for us on the medical side in, you know, in particular. But we, you know, we went through that experience, met with a lot of people, and I think our ultimate conclusion was this was a a real once in a lifetime opportunity, not to just start a business, but really start an entire industry from the ground floor. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we've been able to do that. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a pretty remarkable ride for, uh, for six years or so. Because what was, what, what was essentially the, um, the business model of grassroots? Well, you know, grassroots was, was not even necessarily a, uh, a thought in our mind at that point in time, but we, we applied originally to, uh, you know, each state, as you may or may not know, uh, that's gone through this process has had a competitive application process uh, to, uh, um, to determine who would get the, the, the limited licenses that they would pass out in those states. And I think our perspective, one of the things that we really were focused on is, is originally medical states, not recreational and limited license opportunities where if we could use the skills we had and the team we had to win some licenses, those limited licenses would become very valuable. That was really our initial business proposition. Um, and uh, uh, we applied for five dispensary licenses and one grow and process license in the state of Illinois where we live. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough and unfortunate, both. We won three dispensary licenses, but did not win the grow and process license. You know, I can tell you that our investors were very unhappy. Um, they were happy we won something, but they all thought that the growing licenses was the holy grail, and the dispensary licenses were kind of like the, 
the you know the booby prize if you will and i think that uh it's actually not how it's played out at all the you know, you know retail licenses have been at least as valuable and important as the growing licenses have been over the last few years but i think the most important thing for us is it gave us an opportunity to really focus on one part of the business for the first year or two uh, in a way that I think allowed us to um, to really understand the business. My partner and I were in, every, you know, one of us were in every store every day. Uh, so we lived every part of the business. We actually were behind the counter the first few months selling product to people. I, I, I and I, to this day, apologize to our poor customers and patients who had to deal with me or my partner because we're not the guys that should have been behind the counter. Um, but, right. uh, um, you know, I think being able to focus only on one part of the business gave us a real opportunity to understand it and figure out what we thought the game plan was from there. Got it. So then how did you guys finance the operation? Because you guys raised uh, quite a bit of money for this. How much money have you guys raised today before the... So, um, so the initial... The initial raise um, for the three dispensaries in Illinois was, you know, something in the magnitude of, uh, I don't know, four or five million dollars, I think, as I remember the first time. Um, and we've gone through subsequent raises as we've gone state to state. So we now, um, again, as you may know or may not know, we are in 11 states today with 60 some licenses, retail, grow and process and we are, you know, we're fully vertical, and I want to say seven of those eleven states soon to be eight and nine, and uh, we have raised a total of one hundred and sixty-five million dollars of uh, of debt and equity capital, and then just recently an additional about sixty-five million dollars of of kind of sale leaseback financing capital. So if you look at it all together, it's really about two hundred and twenty-five or thirty million dollars of capital. And one of the, uh, obviously, scaling the operation and, you know, all the different locations and all of that, you know, I'm sure that it was, it was quite a beast of a challenge. But, you know, you, you had some specific stories like one of your uh, places there in Pennsylvania, you know, ran out of money halfway through. So, so how was that like? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and this is not a story I think I've ever told out loud before, but, uh, you know, we, uh, in the middle of construction of our large grow facility in Pennsylvania, um, we ran out of capital. And uh, it was a moment in time when raising capital for cannabis became very difficult. And, you know, one of the things you may understand about this business, like every business, there are cycles to raising capital. There are moments in the course of a year or multiple years where capital is very available and then moments where the markets shut down and it's very hard to raise capital. And yeah. unfortunately for us, uh, as we approached running out of money in Pennsylvania to build that facility, capital was really not available. And, it, um, you know, we spent almost two months, you know, knocking on every door we could knock on very quietly because we never wanted anybody to know, in fact, we had run out of money. Uh, none of our employees knew um, and mostly none of our investors knew. Um, with a couple of very small exceptions, and we were able to uh, to find some investors who uh, who ultimately funded the sufficient rest of the capital we needed to get that that process going. And um, you know, it put it set us back a little bit in Pennsylvania, but it is uh, you know that was one of um, you know one of a whole bunch of moments, but one of the moments that that uh, that was really you know really scary for the business. And and if if we hadn't have been able to find the investors we did, we could be in a very different place today. 
Um, but, uh, um, you know, we were able to get it done, which is great. I can imagine. And, and I know that obviously your space is not an easy one. Uh, not only you're dealing with scaling up a business, which is, you know, you're dealing with the uncertainty of, of its own, but then also with all the regulatory uh, burden, you know, all of that stuff is, is a double the uncertainty. So I guess, you know, when you have all these, you know, let's say problems or issues or fires coming at you, and I guess, you know, this is something that may serve as well for the founders that are currently listening. How do you avoid, uh, you know, getting really panicked and, and really, you know, letting yourself go with all the voices and the what ifs, you know, that you get in your head? And how do you filter through that so that you can really get out there and, and execute? You know, I think, <laughs> I mean, I could make some jokes like, you know, I do yoga every day, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, okay. but the truth is about three years ago, I started doing yoga a couple of times a week and it's actually helped me a lot. Oh, nice. uh, but, but, but that's not really the answer to the question. I think, you know, I think, um, everybody has to find their own way to deal with, with those kinds of issues. And this is a business, as you said, that literally on a daily basis, um, we get, you know, you know, I, I, I joke, it's like, you know, we literally walk through pools of alligators on a daily basis. And it's not a question of if we're going to get bit, it's just a question of which one's going to come up and bite us and where they're going to bite us that day. And, um, you know, I think, the companies that are successful in this space, as they are in many, many businesses, it's not about whether you can avoid those things because you can't. It's about how you deal with them and how you how you bring an organization together and how you build a team to deal with those issues. And one of the things that, um, again, I, I talk about all the time in our business, and, and I do a fair amount of, of speaking about it, is that the single most important thing by far in our business and every business, in my opinion, is people. And, um, you know, one of the real challenges, Alejandro, as we started this business and again, back to six, seven years ago, um, the only folks who wanted to come work for us seven years ago were lifelong flag waving cannabis enthusiasts and cannabis activists, um, which was great because they were passionate and, really challenging in other respects because you can imagine that group of folks comes oftentimes with some challenges. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that has been just a tremendous change over the last 24 months is the ability to attract just superior talent at almost every part of the business. So, you know, we now have, I've been able, you know, we've been able to bring in a CMO who came from Kimberly Clark, um, a head of capital markets who spent a whole bunch of years in a bunch of very well-known hedge funds and uh, and private equity businesses. Um, a head of retail that came from Abercrombie and Fitch, among some other very well-known retail brands. You know, though, those are folks I like to joke, um, you know, a year before they joined us, they wouldn't have had a cup of coffee with me, let alone come to work with us. And um, that's the single biggest benefit and the single most important thing that allows us to deal with every issue. We've just gone through here in Illinois, as I'm sure you know, uh, conversion January 1st to recreational cannabis. So, um, you know, so we have a number of our stores that, that are available both for medical and recreational and more coming over the next year. But the, you know, it, ha it happened very, very quickly based on how Illinois changed the law when they did. We never could have pulled it off. We never could have been ready. We never could have had a, the seamless 
transition we did and, and be able to serve as many people as we did the first couple of days if we didn't have a great team that's been put together over the last few years. If it was about my partner and I, just us, we would have had no chance. So it's 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 about the people, as I think it is in all businesses. 100%. 100%. And uh, tell us about the acquisition, because that's a, quite a... You know, a big, big milestone. I would say now, especially for you as an entrepreneur, you know, now you're you're definitely like the full cycle uh, from beginning to the end, and not the end. I mean, it's a new chapter, no. But I guess, how does this 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 acquisition happen? Like, how did it? You know, did you receive inbound interest, or what was that process like? Well, you know, so again, as I think you may know, we're, we are, you know, we're in 11 states with 60 some licenses. We are the largest to date, still the largest private multi-state operator in the cannabis space. Um, and as we looked around and we looked at our options, Alejandro, we absolutely could have lined up to go public and we were, we were lined up to go public. We could have executed that fairly easily. Um, but as we looked around, there were a number of guys already public in the space uh, that there'd been a year of kind of, uh, you know, seven or eight or 10 of the multi-state operators going public, of which we were bigger than a handful of them already anyway. Um, and we looked at it and said, you know, what do we want to be? How do we want, like, what's the best thing for our shareholders and for our employees? And, and ultimately, our, our conclusion was either put our head down and run our business ourselves or see if there's a partner that we have the right strategic fit with in terms of assets and states and licenses, but more importantly, with strategic thought on the business, right kind of people, the right kind of partners and the right philosophy on the business. Because ultimately, um, again, as you may know, the great majority of the deal we did is stock and, and, uh, you know, so you better darn well believe that the combined business is the right answer. Um, so, you know, to answer your specific question, we, um, you know, it's a very, very small industry is the best way I can tell you. And I think um, to say to say that everybody's talking to everybody all the time is a fairly true statement. Right. So so although I didn't know the two kind of most senior folks at, at Cureleaf, uh who, who we have now agreed, obviously, to merge with. Um, you know, I knew a lot of people who knew them. And we, you know, we spent, I'd say, you know, the better part of, of 2019 first raising capital. We raised about $165 million in a round that we completed in early 2019. And then spent a few months exploring options. And, uh, you know, people introduced us to certain people. We reached out to other people. And um, quite honestly, none of them were very interesting. None of them, none of them felt like they were the right fit for us in many regards. Um, someone introduced us to the folks at Cureleaf. We had an initial meeting and uh, my partner and I walked away and said, you know, this is the first thing that actually makes sense. And, uh, and more importantly, the business philosophy of the two folks and the two most senior folks we met with really jived with our with our thought process and uh um you know as i've said multiple times the only reason as it as as it evolved the only reason not to do a deal would have been if we cared about what seats we sat and what jobs we had and and uh you know my job has been run the business and be a steward for our employees and for all of our investors capital and not to worry about what what job i have um 
And, uh, you know, we feel really, really good about the deal we've done. Very nice. And definitely it was uh, reported at $875 million, So definitely building a business to that level. I think that uh, you should be very very proud on your team as well. So, so well done, well done on that, Mitch. So, I guess uh, one of the um, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is knowing what you know now. I mean, here you are, the Swiss Army knife with the accounting, with the legal, with the now all this experience building and scaling businesses. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and and have a conversation with perhaps that younger Mitch. Maybe that younger Mitch that was starting to think about maybe launching, you know, your own business. What would you what would you tell that younger Mitch uh, if you had, you know, let's say a chat over coffee? What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now before launching a company and why? So, like I talked about a couple minutes ago, um, what I'm not sure I fully understood until going through this process and what I would absolutely tell myself if I could go back seven years for sure, maybe even earlier than that is find the way to raise a little more capital. Even if it means you give a little more of the business away day one, maybe you do it with debt, maybe you do it differently. Maybe you don't have to give up equity, but find a way to raise a little more capital and bring in the best possible talent you can bring at every key spot you need to, because had we been able to, and again, you know, part of this is, is wishful thinking because most of the folks who fit those bills wouldn't come work for us then anyway, but had we been able to build out our executive senior team faster and with more talent early on in the process, rather than two, three years in, um, I think we could have even, grown faster than we did and grown in a way that would have been um, even better for our investors. But I think, and again, to me, the single biggest lesson, and I talk to people all the time, it, it's about people. And you, 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 you have to make sure that you have the best talent around you and you set up the, the, the incentives for, the, for that talent to make sure everybody's pulling the same way. And uh, um, you know, I think that's a huge, huge thing. You know, one of the other things along the same lines, when we started our real estate business, um, a very important advisor to me, who's to this day an advisor lawyer and very close to us and been very involved with us in this business, said to me as I brought my two, uh, two younger and other partners into our real estate business, who are my partners today in this cannabis business as well, um, he said, whatever you do, you know, every other advisor said to me, give them a tiny piece of equity. You're putting up all the money, give them a small piece of equity, but don't make them your equal partners. And, um, I had a different view then. I'm not sure I really understood why, but, um, we, we, you know, we created a true partnership where our incentives were perfectly aligned with each other. We committed to each other that any other investments of any kind we would run by each other and agree that we'd offer them to each other before we ever did anything with anybody else. And I think that has enabled us to grow both our real estate business and more importantly, this cannabis business in a way that it might have not been so easy to do had we not done that. And I think that, uh, um, you know, alignment of interest and focus on the long term, not the short term are, are just critical things. 
which I think a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. So, Mitch, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, I am, uh, you know, www.grassrootscannabis.com. You can uh, find us on the website. You can find my personal email there. Please feel free to email me anytime. It's mcon at grassrootscannabis.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, happy to, uh, connect with, uh, with anybody who's interested in talking about business opportunities. Amazing, Mitch. Thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you very much for your time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.